a great morning so far. God's been speaking to me, certainly. I hope he has been to you as well. Um, challenging us to let go of things that might be hindering, to trust him, uh, to receive from him again. You know, it's only when you've let go of some stuff to God that you can receive again. You know, the stories of people trying to hold on to things and you can't put any more in your hands until you've put down the things that you've been holding on to. And sometimes we have to let go of good things to take hold of better things. And I believe that's what God's been doing for some of us today. Uh, last time I spoke, Obi, could we just have the first slide up? Thank you. Last time I spoke, I spoke on the topic of, that's at the top, broken, misshapen, and glorious, uh, and spoke about the potter, um, if, the picture from Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah the prophet, as the potter is molding a pot, and uh, we just looked at that a little bit to see how that resembled us uh, and what God was saying to us. But today I want to move on and look at a similar kind of illustration, if you like, a similar passage, but with a very different purpose, and it's coming from a letter from a guy called Paul to a group of people in a place called Corinth, which is why this is uh, from 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to Corinthians. And it says this, For for God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We have, and the verse I'm going to be focusing on is that last one, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So last time I spoke and this time we're sort of imagining ourselves as a pot. That's the kind of imagery that's being used here. Uh, And there's a problem with the pot. There's a problem with that imagery because for some of us we might be thinking, well what on earth would God want with me anyway? Why would God want to do anything for me because I know what I'm like, what can I offer to God? Uh, Secondly, other people might be thinking, well I really want that sort of life which is filled with treasure and this all-surpassing power because it sounds great, but actually when I look at my life it's more pot-like than glorious. It's more ordinary than glorious. It's, it's just more mundane. And, and I hear great stories of God doing stuff elsewhere. But when I look at my own life, it just seems to be so far from that. Thirdly, people might be thinking, well, there's a bit of a disconnect. You know, I'm just really busy. Really busy in life and I'm doing lots of things. And, and, I, and my life is... is it's kind of split into sections where sometimes I'm, I kind of, I'm with God and sometimes I'm at work and just really, really busy with stuff. And um, it's kind of disconnected between my spiritual life, which I put in a neat little package, and, and the rest of me, which is somewhere over here, you know? And finally, I think the final problem that I could see is that we just lose our sense of wonder. Because you can read a passage like this and you know exactly where a preacher's going to go and you know you've read it before and, and yet somehow it just doesn't strike you as wonderful anymore. It's become familiar. And so I want to read this passage and preach on it because sometimes the wonderful can become familiar and I think it would be really good to deal with that today as well. Now I want you to think for a moment about the most expensive thing you own. Other than your house, if you own your own home. For many of us, the bank owns most of it. 
and we're usurpers in it, you know. But no, uh, if, if, unless it's the, your home or your car, let's exclude those. I want you to think about, try and think, what's the most expensive thing you own? This came home to us recently because uh, Nat bought a laptop. He's got some money that's his, that's saved up, that's separate to ours. I, we gave him an amount that we gave to Jacob at this same stage in life to get a laptop. Nat put some of his money with some of our money and bought quite a nice laptop, reasonable one. And I realized, bringing this thing home from the shop, that it's the most expensive item in our home. It's the most valuable thing that any of us owns now, is this is Nat's laptop. It's not a particularly, you know, not, not ridiculous one, it's just a, a laptop. But comparatively, you know, we don't think we have anything else that's quite that valuable. Lots of stuff of sentimental value, you know, the old, if your house was burning down, what would you go in and grab kind of question. We can answer that, because there's photo albums and things like that that you might try and grab, probably get the family out. It's always a good plan, isn't it? Um, <laughs> be ashamed to just come out and look at the pictures, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> um, but just think about what's the most expensive thing you've owned for a moment. You see, for some, you might actually have a really nice painting at home. You might have an original painting that's, that's worth not just sentimental value, but it's worth something. You might have an ornament or some jewelry or a musical instrument or something that's got a lot of value to it. And you might really treasure that. Has anybody, I don't know if anybody's come across a new five-pound note yet. Does anybody have one? Yeah. Okay, have you checked the serial number? Yeah. One, one of you has. You've heard this story. So the, there's a new five-pound note coming out. Our old paper ones are no longer any good. Well, they're still okay, but they're being phased out. So if you've still got paper five-pound notes in March next year, this is a public service announcement, uh, <laughs> they're no good anymore. So you have to get rid of them by March. So spend them. We could put the offering buckets around again if that would be helpful. <laughs> Um, if you've got any loose, you know, you want to get rid of. Um, but they're going to be exchanged for these new plastic ones, the polymer ones that are coming out. And the, the story is that the, the ones with the lowest serial numbers on are actually selling for many times above the face value. So people are trading their uh, £5 notes. Some people have been able to get £200 plus for a single £5 note. So if you've got one, check the serial number. Okay? That's the, so if it's really low, 000, apparently it's worth some money. Um, if you know somebody who works at the Bank of England, then talk to them. They might be able to help you out with that. Um, sometimes the things we have at home are worth more than we think they are. So a £5 note suddenly becomes worth more than £5 by the serial number. It's actually got a value that's added. Uh, I don't know if some of you will have seen Antiques Roadshow years ago. I used to, I don't watch it anymore, but I occasionally used to see it and used to enjoy where people seemed genuinely surprised that an item they'd taken along that they thought wasn't worth much was actually worth quite a lot. I was also quite pleased when someone thought, thought something was worth a fortune and it was worth nothing. But that's just more spite than anything, I'm afraid. Um, but those moments where you think you've got something that's, that's kind of of some value, but actually it's worth an incredible amount more, that's the kind of image I want us to have in mind. You see, the Bible is full, the Old Testament's full of treasures. There's, there's gold and silver and treasures everywhere. The temple is is filled with treasures. It's, it's panelled with gold. When you read the stories of the Old Testament temple, it's just amazing. You know, people come in here still, after, even after years after the refurbishments we've done, and they come in and go, wow, it's lovely in here, but, but we don't have panelled gold. You know, and the, the temple did, and pillars clad, and all sorts of things. It was just amazing. Absolutely amazing. And we read stories of Egypt, and the treasures there, and And yet, in the whole of the Old Testament, there's one treasure above all, and it's the presence of God. 
You see, people walk into the temple and they see the fittings and fixtures and they might be impressed. But the only time we read of people being awed is when they come into the presence of God. When the presence of God is there and people have to leave the temple because it's so powerful and overwhelming. The, the presence of God in, in his glory is just too much. We read a few stories in the Old Testament where people like Moses encounter God and Moses is variously by a bush that's burning and, it, and meets with God. Or he's meeting with God elsewhere and he's just allowed to see the back of God as God passes by. So powerful is God Almighty. He's just so wonderful. And the passage we've got here is talking a lot about the light that shines and shines out of darkness. And Paul's, we're just kind of cutting into this in midway through a passage because Paul's been looking so much before this at this incredible glory of God. And, and I want to just look firstly at the treasure that we're talking about today, the treasure of God's presence, the treasure of the gospel the treasure of the glory of Jesus Christ. And it's a really simple truth to start us off, is that the treasure is more glorious than you think it is. And the first thing I want us to see today is from this passage and from the truth of God's word is that sometimes we minimize God down to make him manageable. But he's actually far more powerful and far more glorious than that. God is accessible. He makes himself accessible. But he is glorious and splendid, and wonderful, and words run out. And Paul starts talking about light, and he talks about the kind of light that when God created and said, let there be, he's talking about that kind of special light, the first light that's ever been there. That sort of magnitude of glory, and he's trying to say, this is the treasure that we're talking about. Holy and majestic. And we shift from Old Testament to New. And we arrive with Jesus, who seems accessible. And he is, and he's with people. He's with the broken and the needy and the poor and the lame and the hurting. And, and he's with them. And he walks with them and he talks with them and he eats with them. But there's a moment that comes when Jesus goes up a mountain and he's with three disciples. And suddenly the Jesus that's so familiar to them takes on a different appearance. And for a moment, his th- these three disciples see Jesus transfigured. The Bible talks about changed. Uh, completely transformed. And they see something of his heavenly glory up a mountain. And, and we read this story and it, and it seems so otherly. And far from being repulsed or repelled or overawed so that they have to run away, Peter's the one who says, well, I quite like this. That's my paraphrase. But he says... Should we build some tents so we can stay here? Because there's something so attractive in this overwhelming presence of God. It's glorious. And for a moment in the New Testament, in that story in the Gospels, we see a glimpse of Jesus glorified. And he's like that today. Glorious and reigning and wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. The treasure we're talking about is more glorious than you think. The container is a clay jar. This treasure in jars of clay. It's literally, the words literally mean a thing made of clay. Very glamorous description, isn't it? 
For those of us who, you know, we, most of us try and look presentable if we leave the house. We're less worried about what we look like inside the house, perhaps. But we've probably washed this morning, probably done our hair as best we can. We've probably thrown some clothes on, having put a little bit of thought into it. For me, it takes a bit more thought because I, I pull something out and I'm still not sure if it goes with this or not. And occasionally I check with Judith and she gives me a thumbs up or sends me back to the wardrobe again and says, no, that's not going to work because I need all the help I can get. But you try, and you try and do the best you can. And and this word I'm I'm bringing today is going to be encouraging, but this bit may not sound like it. You see, I want to tell you that the container is more ordinary than you think. And I'm not minimizing our magnificence and and kind of detracting from the wonder of creation, because I think think humanity is wonderful, and we bear the image of God, but actually we're ordinary. And some people have looked at this passage and said, maybe it talks about jars of clay because they're fragile and breakable. Maybe that's what Paul's talking about. Others have looked and said, well, no, it's because they're cheap. I don't think it's because they're cheap or because they're breakable. I think it's because there's meant to be a contrast between the treasure and the container. And the treasure is extraordinary, and the container is ordinary, and that's okay. See, much as there's a tendency in our thinking and our culture to bring God down, we also try and lift ourselves up quite often. And I want to tell you, we don't need to. You are wonderful. Genuinely, you are. We are wonderfully and fearfully made by a loving God, a loving creator who died for us, and our value is determined by not this container, but it's determined by the price by which we were bought, which is Christ's life. He gave everything for us. So we're worth everything, but actually we know also that we're quite ordinary. I want to say this, that God puts his treasure in ordinary people. It's amazing, isn't it? And actually not uncommon in the old world. This, this kind of world we're reading about, that Paul's talking about. It's not that uncommon for people to put their treasures in jars that were just ordinary. Mainly for security purposes. A bit like today and these catalogs you get through the door. I don't know if you get these sort of things. We get random catalogs that tell you how, sell you things to fix problems you didn't know you had. And you can buy baked bean tins that don't really have baked beans in, but that when you go out you can put all your valuables in your baked bean tin. You may have seen these sort of things. Fake note, you obviously get better catalogs than I do through the post. Um, but all these sort of gadgets that you can get to hide things in, hide, hide your personal effects. We had a house once uh, when we first moved down to Devon that had a safe in it. So we had a large picture above in front of this safe, which I thought was fabulous and felt very special. We had absolutely nothing in it, but it just felt great, the thought that someone had a, you know, a house that deserved a safe. I thought that was great fun. Um, and God actually puts his treasure not into a safe, but into these clay pots we're talking about. Generally, if you, I enjoy art galleries. I enjoy some museums. And I love going to look and see what's on display. Uh, and just to, just to you know, try and capture something of the, the beauty of what I see. And I really enjoy that. I enjoy particularly going to the National Gallery in London. And you walk around and I can pop in for an hour and see a bit. Or I can stay for a bit longer. Uh, but I really enjoy that. But generally speaking, the art galleries I've been to or the museums I've been to are fairly well done. They're reasonably well put together. There's often sort of signs telling you where to go, and you 
generally they're well lit. They're, the exhibits are able to be seen. Because the whole point is that you can see clearly. And things are on display and elevated. Generally it's not too shabby. But there is this sense in this passage that the treasure is much greater than that found in an art gallery and the setting isn't as glamorous. And somehow we get this incredible merging of God's glory and our humanity in this passage. And I, I want to say a few things about this very quickly. I want to see today that God's presence transforms ordinary places or ordinary people. In the Old Testament, we read stories in the temple I've been speaking about, about a small box that was in there. And it was called the Ark of the Covenant. And this thing had cherubim above it, these sort of angelic beings that had been made. It was huge, great big wingspan. Huge, great wingspan that had been made to, to kind of this, over the top of this little box, really. Not a very big thing. But the box symbolized God's presence. In it were tablets, in it were a bit of Aaron's staff. And, and this, this box symbolized for the people the presence of God. And there was a time previously in Israel's history when this box had been stolen, this Ark of the Covenant had been stolen. And it got stolen by the Philistines. And because they didn't worship God, the story goes that things didn't go too well for them when they had this Ark of the Covenant in their property. People started getting ill and sick. And so they, they decided after a little while, we need to get rid of this thing and ship it back to, to Israel. And so they shipped it back just into Israel. And it came into the possession of a man and his family. And the Bible tells us that because this box was there with the presence of God there, this man was overwhelmingly blessed. There was something so incredibly special about the presence of God on him that his home, his family was transformed by the blessing of having the presence of God there. It's not a great surprise, is it? That God's enemies, those who are set out to destroy him, would be troubled by having God's presence there. God's people would be blessed by having his presence there. God's presence transforms ordinary places. The ordinary house that God's presence was in was transformed. Secondly, I think we can see here as well that God doesn't dismiss a person based on their ordinariness or their brokenness or their own seeming lack of value. God doesn't look at you or me and say, you're too ordinary. I'm going somewhere a bit nicer. He doesn't look and say, I'm going to pour out my presence and my spirit on someone else who's a bit shinier, who's a bit better put together, who's got their life sorted a bit more, he says, I'm here for you. I want to put my treasure in your life to put my wonderful glory inside you and I want you to hold me, you to be my container, if you like, or you to be blessed by having me in your life. The whole point of this is in the scripture I read earlier. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this All surpassing power is from God and not from us. The whole point is that people see him, not us. Thirdly, just before we move on, I want us to see that God doesn't give us leftovers. He doesn't start pouring out his presence, his spirit, his best, his blessing, his abundance. He doesn't start pouring out the goodness of God into some people's lives and then run out and make a second batch and give you kind of leftovers. You, you, you probably never have this, but you know sometimes you're, you're trying to stretch a meal a bit further, and you're kind of you're dividing up. And maybe you, we never do this because we just make some more. But you, you know what it's like. Maybe you're trying to stretch something out, and 
make a bit more gravy and water it down a bit and stretch it out a little bit more. Can it, and, and you kind of you get the second best by the end. Somebody else has had a better portion than you. And God doesn't do that. He, he always gives us the best. He gives us the same. He puts the same treasure in. And Romans 8.11 says this, that actually the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. The Holy Spirit, the same one that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you and me. I find that awesome. Because there are situations I walk into and my thinking tells me that I haven't got what it takes to deal with the situation that's in front of me. I I pray prayers like, God, I I need you to turn up here. Because I haven't got what it takes to fix this. And the truth is actually that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in me. Isn't that amazing? And he's in you. Same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So what does it mean to live as a treasure carrier? It means that God is with us. Wherever we go, everywhere we are, God's with us. Judith? Would you just go and help Noah? Thank you. It means that God is with us wherever we are, wherever we go. He never leaves us, never forsakes us. He's always, always, always with us, all the time. He's never going to abandon you. It also means this, that God is put on display through us. That treasure that's in our lives isn't actually for us. The pots aren't just meant to be rich pots. They're meant to display the glory of God, to hold it and portray it to others. The whole point of us receiving God's glory, receiving his presence, is that others might see it through us. I want us to see something very profound in this passage, and I'm going to read out a couple more verses, which I don't, I think I have got them on the screen. Here we go. It says this, We are hard-pressed, On every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be revealed in our body. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. It's so tempting to think that the only way we can display God well is to have a shiny life that looks fabulous. It's so tempting to think that if only I could get my life sorted out and have everything put in place, then I'd be ready to proclaim Jesus more boldly. To go up to people and say, look, you can have what I've got, because isn't it good? You know, whatever modeling pose you might try and do. Isn't it great? You can have the same kind of life as me. And the tendency is that we then fake it We try and fake a a good life. We try and fake a prosperous life. We try and fake a happy life. We try and fake a spiritual life, whatever that looks like, to try and pretend that there's, you know, other people can have the kind of life that we're faking at having. When actually the truth of it is this, 
that God has put his treasure in jars of clay precisely to show his glory when it doesn't look glorious. That's the reason why. He's showing his magnificent glory in ordinary jars so that when we're hard-pressed, we may not be crushed. When we're perplexed, we won't be in despair. When we're persecuted, we won't be abandoned. When we're struck down, we won't be destroyed. When we're carrying around the death of Jesus, people might see the life of Jesus revealed in our body. If you feel like you're carrying problems and brokenness, it doesn't disqualify you, and it hasn't disqualified me, although I think it does sometimes. It doesn't disqualify us from displaying God's glory. It really doesn't. Because he wants to anoint us and empower us and fill us now, in our brokenness, in our feeling hard-pressed, in our feeling like we're struggling, in our feeling actually that we're moving towards death rather than vitality. He is exactly the place he wants to be seen. At the back of the church, over in your right, behind you, is a poster which has a vision statement on it. We don't drag it up to the front much. But it talks about us encountering God moving in his spirit, being transformed, and going to live for Jesus day by day by day. But there's a phrase at the beginning of that that says this, we see a radiant church. We believe that God has called us to be a radiant church, and that could so easily be taken to to mean that we have to look really shiny. Everything has to look polished and slick and professional, and, uh, and you know we just want it to look good. That isn't what that passage means. You see, the radiance is seen despite the obstacles and despite the ordinariness and despite the reality of day-to-day life. That's where God's radiance is seen as we're encountering God in the mess, as we're seeing him transform our lives when actually we don't have all the answers, but we're holding on to him and we're trusting him and we're seeing what God will do in people's lives just like us. Our vision as a church is not to be polished, it's to display God's glory in the midst of our magnificent ordinariness. It's to display him more so that people can see whether we are skipping along, rejoicing, or holding on with grim determination that he is Lord, and we are not. Finally, we see that God is at work through us. God is with us. He's on display through us. He's at work through us. You know, the world can be a dark place. For many people, the world is a dark place. But our calling as those filled with the Holy Spirit is to be light bringers into our communities. To be those who make the world brighter. And that sounds really twee and it sounds really nice, but it's a living reality. I believe that sitting here, all of us can be transformative in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. That the light of Christ within us, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, is enough to change people's eternal destinies. It's enough. Those who seem to have no interest in the things of God may still dismiss what God is doing. Paul says that in this passage a bit earlier than the verses I read. He says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. He still goes on to say, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. So don't worry if not everybody notices, but be confident in what God's done. Be confident that 
actually disciple-making, which is Jesus' command, isn't bringing something religious and weird into people's lives on an occasion. It's actually making people follow us and be like us, ordinary people containing God and containing his spirit. Ordinary people who love Jesus and who have been changed by him. It's not bringing Jesus who's distant and in a little box in our own lives, kind of a a religious box that we unpack occasionally and try and force him on people who aren't interested. Disciple-making is actually engaging people in the ordinariness of our lives. Being honest before people, being real, being whole. You know, I'm really challenged by, by this thought that God's hope for the world is the hope of glory living in me and living in us. I'd love it if he did it some other way. I really would. You know, if I'm really honest, I've been to too many, well, probably not enough prayer meetings, but I've prayed this prayer too many times. God, would you move in our town? Lord, we pray for revival in our community. I've prayed that too many times. Why am I saying that? Because the prayer without action isn't any good. Because actually God, I imagine, is sitting there going, yeah, yeah, I'm moving. My treasure's in you. Go. Stephanie was sharing earlier about the wind that wants to blow us into a new place, a more spacious place, a wider place. I can imagine going, yeah, yeah. God going, I'm trying. Give me something to work with. Because revival is actually the transformation of our lives giving us confidence to believe that God is who he says he is and that our lives can be lived for his glory and that we're going to go and do that. Many of you, many of us, are working to make a difference. You know, I'm humbled when I read of the things that people are doing on their day-to-day lives, coming alongside broken and needy people. I'm thrilled to be part of this church and to hear what so many of you are doing day by day by day representing Christ in dark places. And I commend that and say, well done, thank you. Thank you on behalf of the cause of Christ in this town. Thank you, keep going. Keep representing Jesus in broken places. Keep representing him in dark places. Keep in and taking yourself, even when you don't know if you've got all the answers, keep doing it. If you're not yet making a difference and you want to, then I would suggest we start like this. Thank God for what he has already done. And then be the difference. That's it. So my prayer today is that as we look at the thought that God has put his treasures in jars of clay, we might have confidence in his work, not in ourselves. We might have courage to live with faith. We might have confidence again at God's ability to shine his light in dark places. We might have courage to live as if God were living inside us. And that we might make a difference in our community. I believe that the God we're looking for is closer than we think. The God we're longing for sometimes is at hand. That the God you're saying in those difficult situations, God, where are you? He's, he's within. The hope of the gospel is displayed in us. Shall we pray together?